Welcome to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Birma. Jake Wood didn't break the color barrier for the Detroit Tigers. That was Ozzie Virgil in 1958. Wood wasn't the first African-American to play for the Tigers. That was Larry Doby in a brief 18-game stint in 1959. Wood wasn't even the first African-American to come out of the Tigers' farm system and play in the big leagues. That was Jim Proctor, who made two starts in 1959. But what Jake Wood accomplished made as much of an impact in Tigers history, and in some ways made more. Wood was the first African American to come out of the Tigers farm system and become a regular starter on the team. In fact, he led off as a rookie in 1961 in a loaded Tigers lineup that included sluggers Al Kaline, Norm Cash, and Rocky Calavito. The 1961 Tigers won 101 games, but finished behind the eventual world champion Yankees. Wood led the American League in triples as a rookie. He was third in stolen bases and finished sixth in voting for Rookie of the Year. Wood's arrival on the Tigers signaled to fans, black and white, that, at long last, integration was here to stay at the corner of Michigan and Trumbull. The Tigers, to their lasting shame, had resisted integration for a full decade after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947. It did long-term damage to the team's relationship with African Americans in Detroit. For Wood to join and contribute sent a message to Tiger fans that the color barrier was finally gone for good. As we'll hear, one young Detroit fan who got this message loud and clear was Willie Horton. I spoke with Jake Wood earlier this summer, just weeks after his 80th birthday. I was blown away by his warmth, his charm, and his continuing passion for baseball and softball and for the Tigers. Jake Wood, Detroit Tigers second baseman from 1961 to 1967. Jake, welcome. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Just brings back fond memories when you mentioned the Detroit Tigers in those years. That I played with him was just an honor and a pleasure. You were a nine-year-old Brooklyn Dodgers fan growing up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in the major leagues in 1947. What did it mean to you to see Jackie Robinson achieve that? I think it was uh, more important to uh, my mother and her her generation because, you know, like you said, I was nine years old, so I was uh, unaware of... Uh, you know, the conditions that existed in America when it came to, you know, like African-Americans. I know that, you know, we followed African-Americans that played in the in the Negro League, and I know my, my mother was a Dodger fan, and that's how I come, you know, I became a Dodger fan. So the real significance of what Jackie Robinson had, had done, not only for African-Americans, but for baseball, you know, didn't, resonate you know within me at such a young age but as after i got older and started realizing you know the importance of it and how and what he contributed was you know just opened the door for guys like myself because uh recently i was in detroit you know and they were celebrating uh negro league uh players you know that played in the negro league and and all that type of talent that never had the opportunity to play Major League Baseball. So it was just a, an honor for me for what Jackie Robinson did, you know, for opening a door for guys like myself. Did you get to Ebbets Field? Did you see Jackie Robinson play there? Oh, yeah. We uh, <laughs> occasionally, you know, we went to uh, Ebbets Field as, as a youngster, you know, uh, to watch uh, Jackie Robinson perform. 
And I think uh, him and Don Newcomb and I think uh, who else they had, Joe Black. Uh, and then later on, you know, Junior Gilliam, Charlie, Charlie Neal. But uh, it was just an, an honor and a pleasure for me uh, growing up loving baseball as I did, you know, to see Jackie Robinson perform, not realizing, you know, what he had to go through physically and mentally to be in that position. You signed with the Tigers in the winter of 1956. At that time, the Tigers had yet to integrate, at least at the major league level, and they were kind of dragging their feet on integration. Did that give you any hesitancy to sign with the Tigers system? Uh, not not really, because uh, the scout that was in the area, his name was Irving Babbitt Jacobson, and he was the area scout for the Detroit Tigers, and and we became you know friends you know while I was in high school because I went to an all boys school, and we were quite dominant you know like in in certain sports especially baseball, so there was you know quite a few guys on our baseball team uh, when I reached high school that were very very excellent athletes that that Rabbit was scouting and he signed I think he signed about three or four of them into the Tigers organization, but he took me over and mentored me. When I graduated from high school, he uh, talked to me about attending college, about getting an education, you know, and he promised me, he said, you go to college, and any time you want to sign, I'll sign you. And I went for about a year and a half, and I just wanted to play baseball, and he kept his promise, and he signed me in 1957, and that's when my career started. So you arrived in Lakeland in 1957 for spring training. You had grown up in an integrated neighborhood, gone to an integrated school, and you said this was your first experience facing and experiencing segregation. What surprised you the most when you came to Lakeland? It was just a a culture shock to, to me. You know, to uh, not be able to uh, enter certain premises with the uh, water fountains with, you know, colored white. And even, you know, when we were in Tiger Town, you know, when the uh, uh, rooming facilities was, you know, segregated, you know, because all the black players was in, we lived in, uh, I guess, an old Army or Air Force uh, facility. They had a big, big, uh, barrack and all of us were you know in one spot but you know we did uh eat together in you know in tiger town and and, and lunch and things like that but once you entered into lakeland it was a different story you know we couldn't go in certain uh locations you could definitely couldn't go in and eat anywhere or attend you could go to a movie but you had to sit you know in in a, a limited area so I just wasn't, you know, used to that <laughs> because, like you said, I grew up in, in an integrated neighborhood, played with, with all types, Italian, Jews, Polish. We just we just played, and there was no such thing as, you know, you couldn't go here, you couldn't go there. If it was, I totally was not aware of it until I reached Lakeland, Florida. So in 1959, in the minors, you were moved from shortstop to second base to make room for another star prospect. Do you ever look back at that and think maybe you were a shortstop all along or a second base where you belonged? (laughs) 
Not not really, because because at that that age, all I wanted to do was just play. And uh, you know, someone is uh, monitoring you know your progress, and if they move me wherever, I would have went. The only thing I probably wouldn't enjoy was that being the catcher, because there was no way I was getting behind the plate. (laughs) (laughs) From short to second, I mean, it was no no issue. Because, uh, you know, you just wanted to play, just perform and, and do, you know, the very best that you could, wherever you could, and make a contribution, you know, to the team winning. Well, let me ask you about your debut in 1961, opening day, your fourth at-bat of the day. You hit a home run, uh, your first game in the majors, and you connected. I, I know you've replayed it a lot of times in your mind. Tell me about the pitch, where it landed, how you felt, everything. Well, very... <laughs> I, I don't remember the pitch, but I know I hit it in, in the upper deck in, in, uh, in Detroit, and it, and it seemed, you know, so easy. So I guess in my mind, I said, wow, there's some great things to come, but unfortunately they didn't happen as frequently as I, uh, as I wanted. But the fact that, you know, when, you, when you're out there playing the game and you can you know, make a contribution. And that's why you have 25 guys on the team and you you need them in the course of the season. And to do what you do, when you do it, how to do it, you know, to come out on the winning side, that's all that matters. And I know I was very exuberant, you know, because that was my my first hit in the major leagues. It was quite, you know, a a, a thrill for me just to be out on on the field and to you know, just to do something to to help the Tigers, you know, to win, was all that I cared about. The fans gave you a huge ovation. I'm curious about the reception of the black fans. Obviously, they were eager to embrace an African American star. Did you feel that embrace right away, or do you think there was any hesitancy on the part of African American fans in Detroit, based on the Tigers' track record of resistance to integration in the '50s? I think uh, the years after I left Detroit, you know, because, you know, being a major league baseball player and, and limited to, you know, uh, places that I, you know, and being a young person, you know, I didn't go that many places in Detroit. So I really didn't have any kind of uh, a lot of interaction, you know, like with African-Americans in Detroit, you know, just people that might have been, you know, in, in the neighborhood but I really felt, you know, their participation after when I go back to Detroit and and elderly people come up to me and tell me, you know, what it really meant to them for me to be out on the baseball field. And a lot of young guys, you know, they're middle-aged now, tell me, you know, what an inspiration it was to see me out on the field, you know, like and in, the inspiration they got from me playing with the Detroit Tigers. And, I mean, nobody never told me that, you know, when I was playing, but this is after the fact, and it just made me, you know, feel very, very, you know, inwardly very good that I could have a positive and effect on a generation of people who were denied, you know, the fact that, you know, they just couldn't go to a baseball game to see someone, you know, like them. 
you were a pioneer because you were the first player to come up through the system and become a regular starter with the Tigers, but you did have other African-American teammates. Bill Bruton came over in a trade in the offseason. Bubba Morton came up a couple game, or a few games uh, into the season. Did it help that you weren't isolated on that team? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, because, you know, when, when I look back and the fact that, you know, like, there was, yeah, there was, you know, limited to how many African-Americans you came in contact with, but my respect goes out to the Hispanic players because I remember, uh, you know, like even in the minor league system, I remember the, I think the, the Tigers had one Hispanic player in their whole system. And as you, you know, you play different teams, you might have seen one here, one there. And the very fact that these young men come from another country, another culture, and could not speak the language, you know, that was, that's what I call difficulty. Hmm. You know, because, you know, when I would go to different cities and things like that, even in the major leagues, you know, the society was a little different, you know, so people, you know, African-Americans used to embrace, you know, Gruton and Morton and myself, and we had interaction. But Hispanic players, they were really, really isolated. And I give my heart out to those guys because I really, really didn't realize the effect that it had on them because you just like you were there and you alone, nobody to talk to, couldn't adjust to, you know, the language and the culture. But they they excelled, they exceeded. Now, when you look at Major League Baseball, what do you see? A whole lot of Hispanic players, so I give them absolute credit for what they went through, more so than myself. Hmm. That 1961 team was one of the great Tigers teams of all times, 101 wins uh, in the pennant race right until the very end, uh, and of course had Rocky Colavito, Norm Cash, Al Kaline. What was it like leading off, having those big bats behind you, and uh, getting on base and seeing them come to the plate? Oh, yeah, it was quite a, quite a joy because, you know, and I, I, I laugh sometimes because uh, if, if I, you know, people used to say, you know, I could run and things like that. But the one thing I couldn't figure out was how, how to steal first base. Because <laughs> if I, <laughs> first base, we, you know, maybe we were one more game. But, you know, once I got on first base, the chances of me scoring was, you know, very high. You know, like you said. K-Line, with Bruton, with Calavito, with Cash behind me, you know, the chances of me scoring were very, very good. So to get on first base, I mean, it was just, I mean, a joy to me. And to be able to, you know, do the things that I did to make a contribution. And I look back, you know, not too many teams went over 100 games, just, you know, this day and age. But we, like you said, we we won a hundred and one, and I think still feel uh, stayed what eight games behind the Yankees. Cause you, but so you can imagine what type of organization the Yankees had. You know, even with the success that we had and the thrill of just you know going out there day in and day out and giving a hundred and ten percent to winning that amount of games. Even with those big bats in the lineup, or maybe because of them, I'm wondering if there was extra pressure on you as a leadoff hitter. You led off as a rookie, 
Uh, you played 162 games. I, I think you, or I assume you let off all of them. Did you feel extra pressure coming in as a rookie and being the leadoff hitter in the lineup? No, not not really. I think the the biggest pressure that I felt because I, uh, you know, also led the league in, in strikeouts and I had, what, 141. And my thing, you know, because sometimes it can get, you know, in your head was what to make, you know, contact. And I look back now and I big, and just like when you do anything, you know, it's, it's, it's being able to adjust to, you know, the situation or the pitcher. And if I could have learned that, you know, like at a young age and do, you know, maybe I would have done better at, you know, getting getting on base and making contact. But the biggest thing was, you know, if they had scouting reports on me, they, they fulfilled them because they used to throw certain pitches and I just couldn't hit them. You've written that one of your great memories was going to Yankee Stadium the first time the Tigers went to New York and you had family and friends there. Uh, who was there, and what do you remember about that experience going to Yankee Stadium near your hometown of Elizabeth, New Jersey? Well, I, I think they had a couple busloads, but the big thing was, you know, my mother and my father and my sisters and, and, and brothers, you know, and, and a couple of my aunts, you know, were very, very close to me, you know, to, to see them at the ballpark and to cheer me on was just heart rendering to me, you know, to know that what they had gone through in this society, you like you say, as an African American and to come to see me play in, you know, uh, a monumental place like Yankee Stadium was, you know, I just cannot explain what it meant to me and for them to see me out on that baseball field. And you had two hits that day. I was looking at the stats. You had a stretch of 12 games where you had two hits nine times, and that was the ninth. So you were red hot when they saw you. (laughs) I don't know about red hot, but (laughs) maybe. uh, I I just don't remember, you know, like the games itself. But, uh, you know, just to participate, you know, and stand, you know, like growing up, and being a Dodger fan and knowing, you know, the competition that the Dodgers had against the Yankees and the Yankees, because I always used to, uh, you know, wonder how a team like the Yankees in that particular era and, you know, like the Boston Celtics, you know, like in baseball, how does a team like that dominate, you know, year after year? And when you get out there on the field and you and you see when you're, when you're participating – against these guys, and it's just that they, they didn't uh, exhibit any more talent, but they knew how to play the game. They knew what to do, when to do it, and how to do it in certain situations to allow them, what, positive results. And when you go out there, you know, because, like you said, Norm Cash had, what, outstanding here, Rocky Colorado, K-Line, but when you look at the Yankees, what, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, Muscow, and Roger Maris, all of them. I mean, and they, and Elston Howard, Whitey Ford, they did whatever was necessary. And that's the difference between, you know, with team winning and losing. Just, you know, executing things at the right time. You know, you try to teach uh, young, you know, young guys like, like right now. You know, learn the game, 
because once you learn it, you know, it's relatively simple. But you got to just execute certain things at certain times so you can put your team in what? Positive results. And part of what made that 1961 season so incredible was that it seemed to come out of the blue. The Yankees were uh, had won the pennant the year before, had won several pennants in previous years. The Tigers hadn't contended seriously for a long time, had won 71 games in 1960, and all of a sudden it all clicks. You were in first place, as I mentioned, uh, till about for most of the season, about late July. Uh, when did you know as a team that you could contend with the Yankees for the pennant that year? Well, you really, you know, day by day, you really don't think about, you know, at least I did, you know, you just go out there and you try to win at all costs, you know, like every game. And then I think it really dawned on me, I think, when we went into New York in September, and I think we were a game ahead or a game behind or whatever, and I think we lost, what, eight in a row after that. After we left, you know, when the Yankees, when we left Yankee Stadium, I think we went to Baltimore, Boston or whatever, and, and by that, by the time we recovered, when we were six or seven games out. But I mean, during the course of the year, you know, I, at least I did, you know, think about uh, what place you're in, this, that, and the other. But you just try to perform, especially when you're on the top of of of, uh, of your league, to win as many games as you possible and don't give away any. And I don't think, you know, during the course of the year, I don't remember, you know, just giving away any because, you know, when you start giving them away, even early in the year, they become the, you know, they bite you in the behind, you know, in the, in the latter part of the year. So the fact that you know, I don't think, you know, was on our mind, you know, constantly that we're in first place or second place or just day by day, you know, just doing what you know what to do how to do it, you know, to what? Come out on top. That sweep in New York, Labor Day weekend, was so painful. All of those games were close, very competitive, uh, and yet you ended up dropping all three, and that triggered another uh, bigger losing streak. Right. After the sweep, you guys weren't mathematically eliminated, but did it feel at that point like the pennant race was over? I guess not, not, not over, but it was just like, like you said, when we lost those three, and I think we went to Baltimore, or Boston. I think we're still in a uh, in a fog, you know, from from those defeats. Because, like you said, they were close and they were competitive. And by the time you know, just like you get into a, you're daydreaming, and then when it, when the dream, when you you know, when you open up your eyes and you look, man, we lost what seven or eight in a row. So it's not just like you just came out of it and just, you know, with a start all over. It's just something just like if somebody hits you in the in the jaw and you're in a fog for about a week and then when you wake up, you look, wow, what happened? <laughs> as painful as that road trip was, there's a great moment at the end that I want to ask you about. After a 1-8 and eight road trip that virtually ends your playoff hopes, uh, you return to Willow Run Airport, I believe in the middle of the night, and there's a huge crowd of fans gathered there to greet you, I, to show appreciation for the season. How surprising was that? And describe that moment and that response you got from them. Well, it's, it's, I think one of the biggest things when you're participating in any sport, 
and you know your hometown crowd treat you you know like you like they did like your royalty it it you know it just builds confidence in you know your ability to perform you know because like you say you play 80 games at home that's a lot you play 80 some on the road you expect hostility on the road and but that motivates you you know to do better it really don't resonate in your heart and mind but if you if if the hometown fans treat you you know like you they're part of you that's really really uplifting and to have someone come to say you know like they did to say thank you it meant you know it's very heartwarming and it meant a lot to us individually and collectively so you finished that season. It was a stellar rookie season. You led the league in triples with 14. You were third in stolen bases, sixth in hits. Which of those stats, hits, triples, stolen bases, or was it something else, were you most proud of? Which stat was most important to you? Well, they were all important. And then, you know, you come to realize, you know, like after the season that I played in a, in, in every game, you know, and that, that was important to to to, to me that, you know, there was no no downtime. And I look back now, I mean, I, I wasn't that big because I only think I weighed like a 162 pounds or whatever. But the fact that it was there every day and they gave me the opportunity, you know, they had that confidence in me to have me out there every day was very, very uh, heartwarming and thrilling, you know, for me that I, that I played in, what, every game. What do you remember about Tiger Stadium? What made it unique? How did it compare to the other parks you played in? What made it feel like home? Well, it was unique, the fact that you were connected to the fans, you know, because the where our parking lot was located, you know, you drive in and it was fans, you know, just like right there. And you had a lot of, you know, interaction with, with, with the fans and, that made you, you know, feel good and, and wanted and, and, and accepted. And the fact that, you know, Tiger Stadium was, you know, there was no advertisement in there. It was all, what, green. And uh, I think that was a, a very good advantage, you know, to playing in in, in that type of uh, venue because in uh, the overhang, you know, like in right field, and I used to hit a lot, a lot of balls, you know, like in that right center field alley. So, and it was just, just unique because, like most, the majority of the stadiums, you know, were all full of what signs and advertisements and things of that nature, which is, you know, okay for them. But Tiger Stadium just stood out for, you know, to me, the fact that they didn't have all of that, and it was just a beautiful place to play. Were you able to make it back for the final season in 1989? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm looking at a, a sign, I mean, of the stadium right now that I got a picture of Tiger Stadium for that last day. And it was signed by, you know, like all the guys that attended. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it, and, it, you know, that, that part of town, what, Trumbull and Michigan, you know, where the Tiger Stadium was located, I think it's an empty lot now. You know, like I said, it was just in Detroit. Somebody rode by there and showed it to me. But just to think that uh, that 
historic place is, you know, no longer there. I don't know what they intend to do with it, but I'm looking at these names of these guys that, that signed these things, you know, that meant so much to me then and now and what they've, the con, you know, contribution, because I think about playing baseball and what it has allowed me to do, allowed me to go to people that you meet in the course of playing the game and the relationships, you know, that you establish. And here I am right now, and that's still, you know, like when I when when I call Willie Horton or he calls me or when, like in 1957, one of my, one of my dearest, dearest friends, a guy by the name of Ted Brzezink, he lives in Waukesha, Wisconsin, you know, and we started out, you know, together in 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 uh, Erie, Pennsylvania. And here we are, you know, 50-some years later through the game of baseball and we're still, what, connected. And I think about all these guys, you know, that I've had the privilege of playing with, like Dick McAuliffe and Steve Burroughs, Jim Bunning. Al Kaline and Mickey Stanley, Gates Brown, Willie Horton, Mickey Lodich, and Denny McLean, and Earl Wilson, you know, and, and, and it just reminds me that how blessed I am, what, through the game of baseball. Yeah. By the way, they're building a youth baseball facility on the site of Michigan and Trumbull. They'll keep the same dimensions of the field, so that site will... will uh, have an ongoing legacy with youth baseball. Oh, okay, that's that's great. That is great. So you mentioned Willie Horton. He said that despite growing up in Detroit, he was reluctant to sign with the Tigers because of their track record, their history when it came to race. But he said his dad let him skip school to see opening day 1961 to watch you play. He saw you hit that home run, and he said seeing you play at Tiger Stadium convinced him to sign with the Tigers. So the, the Tigers owe you a very great debt, an awfully uh, big thank you. Uh, what has he told you about uh, how important it was to him to see you? Well, you know, he talks about that, you know, uh, on occasion, and I like to joke with him, you know, because I tell him, I say, when when his father saw me play, you know, and he took Willie there, and I said, he, and I tell Willie, I said, your father told me, he said, no, nah, if the Tigers sign him to play with, you know, with them, you ought to make, you know, the Hall of Fame if they sign me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he said, nah, nah, nah. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that your father told you that. So we joke back and forth. But, you know, seeing him, you know, coming up as a, as a teenager and what, how he progressed, you know, like in the game, because he told me, you know, when, you know, growing up, he used to be, what, a catcher. And, you know, because he was going to sign with the Yankees as a catcher. And then when he came, you know, when he signed with the Tigers, you know, they put him in the outfield. But, you know, he just transformed himself. And I look at him as a teenager, and I look at him now, you know, not only what he contributed, you know, in the game of baseball, but what he's still doing in trying to, you know, help the youth and unify people. And I say, you know, God bless him, you know, for his continued effort, you know, because sometimes, you know, in life, you know, when we reach a certain status, sometimes, you know, you just forget about where we come from, but not him. 
and I give him praise and I honor him for that, for his dedication, not only to baseball, but to people in general. Absolutely. He came up in 63. He played a little bit in 63 and 64, was a regular starting in 65. When he first came in, were you able to mentor him? What advice did you give him? What, what advice I gave him? <laughs> or was it the other way around? Uh, you know, I don't, I, I, yeah, it should be the other, the other way around. You know, just the one thing, you know, just like it's one thing to have when you look back over the course of and any anything any any sport or anything that that you uh, get yourself involved in, you know, it's one thing to have the physical ability to do something, but the most important thing is, you know, your your mental outlook. You know, because baseball to me is a very very humbling sport. When you realize the fact that you know, if you get three hits out of ten. You're a good hitter. What do you do those other seven times? What do you do when, you know, your teammate makes an error? Because I guarantee you, you're going to make them. So not only, you know, the, the the physical part, but the mental part. You know, sometimes, you know, you, you're a hero. Sometimes you're a goat. So... How do you maintain, you know, stability as far as, you know, keeping an even keel out there on that field? So if there's anything that I probably said or done then was probably in the the mental aspect and not the physical because, you know, he was strong as an ox. He still is. So, you know, trying to, you know, teach him something that that I probably couldn't do. But, you know, when you you, uh, endure... Baseball, you know, day in and day out, you know, it can wear you out mentally. And to keep somebody, you know, uplifted, you know, although you have a, you know, a bad day can turn into a bad week. How do you, you know, support, you know, your teammates mentally, you know, that you got to keep focus on, you know, what you're capable of doing and not try to do something that you can't do. So maybe if there's anything that I might have said or done, it was probably that. Stay focused, what, mentally. Tell me about Al Kaline as a teammate. You called him the silent assassin. Was he able to be a leader on that team? How was he able to be a leader uh, despite his quiet demeanor? By his performance, you know, and his actions out on the field, you know, his his grit, his, you know, just determination. And you could, you know, you could see it, you know, in certain uh, personalities. You know, they don't have to say anything. It's just what they do. You know, some some people, you know, they, they talk a lot, but their actions don't match up with what they say. But, you know, some guys, you don't have to say anything. But when you watch them and you, and you can realize the determination, you know, regardless of what the score is, you know, because I tell young kids now, you know, it's easy to play a game, you know, when you're, when you're beating somebody by a lot. But you watch those guys, you know, when you get way behind. Because once, you know, even though, you know, somebody's beating you by a lot of runs, if you got one out left, there's still a possibility that you can win. And when you have that type of motivation, you know, 
that's what guys like K-Line had. You know, you don't have to say anything. You watch them out there on the field and their, you know, desire and determination, you know, to just to give, what, 110%. And that's all you expected. That's what he did. Another big bat, a very different personality, was Norm Cash. Uh, let me ask you about him. You saw that great season he had in 61. Um, and you also uh, talked about some uh, lighter moments that you had with him behind the scenes. How did he uh, lure you into his mongoose prank? Oh, that, shoot. When I first came down to uh, um, Lakeland and entered, the, you know, the, the clubhouse, and, you know, you're new and, you know, you're excited in, in, in a way, and, you know, guys, you know, introduced them, you know, themselves to you and you know you whatever they say you know you do so i saw this you know this 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 little cage in the, in the floor of the clubhouse and they told me you know there was a mongoose in there and i said well what is a mongoose you know and they explained to me that it was something that you know could fight and kill you know snakes so i mean i'm a little apprehensive then when they mentioned that so i said well, you know where is he because there was nothing there so they told me, you know, because it had a little, a little housing and a little screen, screened area. Told me that it was inside of this little house. You know, if you, if you hit the side of it, you know, he'll come out and you can look at it. You know, I wasn't fearful of the fact, you know, that it was in the cave. So I touched the side of this thing, and this fur thing hit me on the side. Hey, man, you talking about somebody howling and jumping? Because I thought he had gotten out and bit me. So <laughs> it was quite a joke. <laughs> well, so you the you played with the Tigers through 1967, and then were sent to the Reds. Uh, the Tigers had that close finish in '67, and then won it all in '68. How tough was it for you to see your former teammates uh, achieve that, uh, and and you could only watch and couldn't be there with them for it? No, it wasn't. It wasn't tough. I was happy for them. You know, whatever they achieved, and you play with these guys, you know, uh, Dick McAuliffe and Don Word and Gates and Willie and Denny and, and Mickey Stanley and, and Lolich and them guys, you know, you I wasn't resentful. I was happy for them, for the opportunity they had to, to you know, to go to the next, you know, level. So, to me... I didn't have any type of, you know, resentment. I wasn't there, you know, physically, but mentally, even now, when I root, I still root, you know, for the Tigers. I don't like, I don't like to see them lose, but, you know, it's still, they got to still have, you know, they hold a place in my heart. They will always have a place in my heart. And to see them succeed, it be a joy for me, because I know what it means to go out there, you know, every day and perform because you can't tell me that when them guys put that uniform on that they don't want to win they want to win with all their heart and soul it don't you know it don't work out sometimes like it isn't working out for them in a positive way now so when they whatever they achieved like in 1968 they won it all i was happy for individually and collectively, and I said, God bless them for what they achieved. Do you still watch a lot of baseball? Do you follow the team closely? Oh, yeah. Every day I look in the paper, you know, 
get the news or whatever and look and see what the Tigers have done. And, and I just wish them, wish them the, the best. And I just pray that they have a, like a 15-game winning streak so they can get on top. <laughs> so you turned 80 years old last month. And at last report, at least a few years ago, you were still playing softball and racquetball. Do you still get out on the softball field and the racquetball court? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we uh, matter of fact, last week we were in uh, Roanoke, Virginia. And, uh, matter of fact, I'm looking at this here. It says uh, WBSC Senior World Cup, Ro- Roanoke, Virginia, men's 75 major division MVP. I got <laughs> a lot of hits in that tournament. I think that's why my legs are hurting now, but it's still a joy. Congratulations. How many 80-year-olds are out there? Uh, well, the team that I'm on is an 80-year-old team now. You know, okay. I, I, um, but sometimes, you know, like when you I mean, I guess there's not that many 80-year-old teams around, so sometimes, you know, we got to play 75-year-old guys. But the uh, majority of the guys that I'm on the team uh, are over, you know, 80. And uh, they still, you know, perform you know, in excellent condition. and But, again, you know, it's being active. And not only that, the, the fellowship that you develop, what, through, like, baseball, through the game of, of softball. And it's not, you know, just like I tell, you know, like during the week we play pickup games here in, in Pensacola, like every Tuesday and Thursday. You know, we get a bunch of guys, it's usually about – 30 or 40 of us, and they choose sides like we did, you know, growing up. And we play. And you try to admonish, you know, seniors that, you know, when, once you retire, you know, just do something. It's not about it's not about talent. It's about, you know, being, what, active. And I thank God, you know, because, you know, they get questioning me now. Oh, how do you do this? How do you do it, just like anything else, like you tell kids, repetition. You do it, you do it, you do it, then it becomes what? Automatic. And the fact that we can get out there and do what we do, you know, if if I had the resources, I would I would film some of these senior softball games because it's not, you know, not the play itself, but sometimes it's what we say to one another. People would swear that we would what? 10 and 11 years old, you know, here's these guys with uh, knee operation, hips removed and all, heart attacks and things like that, but we still play. But they talk, you know, you think that, you know, you're talking to Willie Mays, you think that's Hank Aaron, you think Mickey Mays, <laughs> but it, it is an absolute joy for me to be able to, what, participate. You still play second base? Oh, yeah. Sometimes, you know, they put me at first base, but normally, you know, second base, you know, I'll get to one every now and then. But (laughs) Do you still stretch those doubles into triples? Yeah, but, you know, when when, when that happens, like when we were in Roanoke, I hit a couple of triples, but you're waiting for the coach to hold you up, but when he's waiting... Hey, when you're on, but you, you know, you run. But it's a, it's a lot of fun, believe me. So it's, it is an absolute joy. Let me ask you about Will and Away. What kind of ministry is that, and what's your role there? Uh, well, they relocated. That's a, a ministry that was here located in uh, Pensacola. 
but it's now in uh, Clearwater, Florida. The young lady that established this Willie Mae Stanberry, uh, and it and it had to do with uh, a jail ministry, you know, where a, a group of, of men from our church, you know, we would go to uh, Escambia County Jail like every Saturday, and we would have uh, different. Subject matter, you know, that we used to talk to these young men about, and they'd have, you know, same thing, you know, with the women. They would go, and that was what the will of the way was all about, you know, with a certain subject, you know, we would talk about, like, you know, what is uh, fatherhood and self-esteem and forgiveness and things of that nature to try to get, you know, even though uh, these young men were incarcerated, you know, to get them on the right path, the right thought process about, you know, the the gifts that they have, you know, and utilize them in a positive manner. And I used to, you know, in, in, enjoy, you know, going up there because it's, it's not, it's like, you know, it's, 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 it's giving back to, you know, the community because I know how valuable it is for, you know, seniors or anybody, you know, to talk to youth about you know about about life issues it's not about you know gaining uh, stuff and materialism and things of that nature but you know just living a life according to what the will of god and that's what the will in a way was all about do you still get to lakeland for spring training each year uh yeah i usually go for uh they invited me to a fantasy camp like the end of uh, January, and then uh, sometime in March, you know, my wife and I would go and spend maybe a week, 10 days with Willie Horton and his wife, you know, doing spring training, and that's always a joy, you know, any time, you know, I get to walk out on that field, you know, and you look around, and, and the difference between now and, you know, 50 years ago is such a such a major, major contrast, you know, because of, of, of the equipment and the things that they uh, they can utilize, you know, to you know to hone their skills, you know, and just say, you know, I don't see how anybody couldn't love what playing baseball. What kind of conversations do you have with current players? Of course, when they're so young, they don't know all the history. I know you spoke with Austin Jackson before his rookie year, and. I guess he knew your name, but he didn't really know your story. What's it like connecting with those players? Oh, a joy, you know, because some of them, you know, when when because Willie Horton is usually the one, you know, that says, uh, you know, I was the first African American, you know, to come through the Tigers organization, you know, back in 1961, such and such, you know, because most of them, and when I say all of them, hey, they weren't even born then, and I say, you know, what's the, the, you know, the humility that they exhibit when they say, you know, thank you for, you know, not only my effort, but the guys that came, you know, during that era and before then that allowed these young men to even be out there. And when they say thank you, that means what? A lot to me. Well, the Tigers franchise said thank you to you. I believe in 2011 you were the second recipient of the African American Legacy Award. Mm-hmm. What did that mean to you? Oh, man, 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 a lot, you know, when someone, you know, can, you know, bring back such 
memories that you've had and then, you know, to be recognized, you know, by that organization because I will, I will always be grateful, you know, to the Tigers, you know, for the opportunity because when you look back and, you know, I've seen many and many of uh, African-American athletes who never had the opportunity, you know, to exhibit, you know, their talent. So the fact that they gave me that opportunity, you know, is just a blessing to me, and I will always be, you know, grateful for being, you know, because to me there's no greater institution than being a professional baseball player, you know. And, and, and I, you know, like I said, you know, I'm just blessed for that opportunity. And that's all anybody would require in life was just having an opportunity. I've seen that in the past you've resisted being called a pioneer, saying there were so many others who were pioneers. To me, it seems like the facts speak for themselves, that you were the first one to come through the system and and be a regular. Uh, Do you accept that label as pioneer? Uh, In a way, but, you know, it's it's one thing, you know, I I know, uh, looking back, you know, I call... I mean, I might be a pioneer, you know, to, for for the Tigers organization, but, you know, I look at, you know, J- Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby and those guys and what they had, you know, not only physically, but, you know, I just cannot imagine the mental aspect of what Jackie Robinson went through to achieve what he did. And, and... I will, you know, always, you know, because I look at him, you know, heck, he was a young man when he passed away. I don't, I was about 50 years old, and you look at, you know, just to be, you know, a competitor and not be able to fight back, but he did it in a manner, you know, that if he didn't do what he did, you know, we wouldn't even be having this conversation, but he did it. And I would always be, you know, grateful for what he achieved, not only on the field, but off the field, and what he represented in in this society. You know, so to me, he was a pioneer. You know, I, you know, they may, you know, recognize me for being, you know, a pioneer for the Tigers, but I wouldn't even exist without what he did, Jackie Robinson. Well, Jake Wood, such an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for all you've meant to the Tigers, to the fans of Detroit. Thanks for sharing your memories today, and thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. God bless you. Jake Wood, Tigers second baseman in the 1960s, American League leader in triples in 1961, and reigning MVP of the WBSC Senior World Cup men's 75 and older division. How about that? You've been listening to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Bierma. The Tigers History Podcast is not affiliated with the Detroit Tigers or Major League Baseball. Follow us on Twitter, at Tigers History. And join us next time for the Tigers History Podcast. Podcast.